Among the many books that I have started to read and not finished yet is Haruki Murakami's Hard-Boiled Wonderland and the End of the World. I won't go on about the book today because, you know, I haven't read much of it, but the title alone has always fascinated me. For me, it brings to mind some physical space, an actual place where you are standing on the edge, where you are quite literally and physically at the end of the world. Last month, I visited a place that, to me, is the closest I've ever seen to the end of the world. Standing on the beach, looking out, you have this incredible sense that what is beyond you is wild, beautiful, an abyss. Everything else is behind you, and you're at that place, at the end of the world. It was an incredible feeling, and not surprisingly, it's an incredible place. This is Haida Gwaii. Talking to chefs, and sometimes lawyers, but always to people who love food. You're listening to the Chef Demoni Podcast. Here's your host, Graham McLennan. Here we are again. Welcome to Chef Demoni. This is my podcast about food, but I think you already knew that. Unless you didn't know that and you're here for the first time, in which case, welcome. My name is Graham, and Chef Demoni is where I speak with chefs and sometimes food-loving lawyers and other great characters from the world of restaurants and hospitality. There's lots more about the show at chefdemoni.com and loads of back episodes, but I think you're here today to hear about Haida Gwaii. If you don't know, Haida Gwaii is an archipelago off the west coast of Canada, pretty far north. Think about halfway to Alaska from Vancouver. Today, I am not going to go anywhere near trying to describe to you what Haida Gwaii is all about for the very good reason that I am completely unqualified to do that. But I do recommend that you spend some time reading on Haida Gwaii. It is absolutely fascinating. This area has been inhabited by indigenous people for a long time, like a long time, something like 13,000 years, which when you stop to think about it, is absolutely mind-boggling. The territory is beautiful, it is rugged and wild, and, and as I say to me, it felt like being on the edge of the world. So many people that we spoke to on Haida Gwaii who are now full-time residents, they came up for a short visit or for a work contract, and then they just decided to stay. I can see why. And one of those people you are going to hear from today, this is Chef Julio or Chef G, and he and his wife and young family have lived on island for several years now. As you'll hear, Julio grew up in Italy, and he's cooked a lot both in his home country and in his adopted country of Canada. And now he and his wife run this amazing restaurant, which is more than a restaurant. It's a community hub, really. It's called Gather. It is on Haida Gwaii, and you'll hear soon exactly where and exactly what that place is called and what it will be called again soon. Bringing an Italian background has given Chef Giulio a, a really interesting perspective on the Canadian food scene. For example, I think you're going to like his analogy when describing the growth in the Canadian culinary world. You'll hear today about tradition balanced against innovation. You'll hear about challenges in meeting the needs of both locals and tourists. And you'll hear about the amazing produce that is available to Chef on Haida Gwaii. You'll also hear how the differences between Haida Gwaii and, and pretty much everywhere else meant that Julio basically had to learn how to cook all over again. And finally, you are going to hear the reverence that Julio has for this place that he's in, 
for this rugged and remote community, and you'll hear how important it is to him to acknowledge the place and his hosts, the Haida people. All right, join us now first table side and then walking around the restaurant. You'll hear there's a bit of fan noise from time to time in the background, but hey, you'll just feel like you're there with us. This is my talk with Chef Julio at Gather Restaurant on Haida Gwaii. Okay. <laughs> oh, this is good. We okay. We might as well capture me laughing at myself, Chef Julio. Thank you for starting this interview again after I have pressed the record button. We are in your beautiful space, Gather, in Queen Charlotte City, and you just explained the Haida name to me and what's happening with that. Can you can you tell us that story again? Can you tell us how to say this in Haida and and what's happening here in the city? Well, welcome, first of all. Uh, yeah, we are in uh, Dajingids, which is uh, at the moment is known as the, the village of Queen Charlotte. But we're in the process of returning the name to the Haida Nation. Uh, it's been a request from uh, Haida elders. And, and so now the village of Queen Charlotte is going through the bureaucratic process to change the name. We'll be, I believe, the first community in BC that is going through that process. And so has been... Um, uh, really interesting to be part of the conversation, understanding what it looks like to return a name, getting everybody's voice involved in the conversation, you know, uh, eventually doing something that everybody feels it's the right thing to do. And it's something that easy that we can do to chip away at reconciliation. Let's stay in touch on that because I'd love to hear from you when when the process is complete. Of course. But let's back up a little from that and and really talk about your arrival here and your family's arrival as i understand it you came up for uh what was going to be a year and here you are four years later so how did you come to be here so um my my wife is a midwife and she uh maybe 10 or so year ago went to school uh, to midwifery school with the woman that brought midwifery back on island after quite a few years that women weren't able to birth here on island and so at some point, it's a, it's a fairly taxing job uh, that requires a lot out of you. Our friend Selena decided to take a year off, uh, moved to Montreal for the year and invited Emery to take over her practice for one year. We live in Talal, which I, I believe you have visited. We have. Uh, a small little village right by the ocean. We have this beautiful house by the ocean. Coming from Kelowna, so a growing city, uh, busy life, business here, mortgages, raising a very young family. And to be honest, uh, uh, looking for a change. And so we were intrigued by the opportunity to live in a small community. And this kind of, I say it was a gift from the universe, but really it was uh, a gift from my wife, I would say, through her own experience, her own connections, that uh, this opportunity came up. And the conversation went a little bit like this. It was, uh, Julia, do you want to move to hire a wife for one year? And I said, yes. (laughs) (laughs) So there was no back and forth. No hesitation. Um, uh, We had both been here. Uh, we visited the island, uh, my wife, multiple times. So it felt really clear there was a, a place that we wanted to spend more time and experience and really give us an opportunity to do something we wanted to do. And so, yeah, it felt like a, a real gift. It was supposed to be one year, and we quickly realized that uh, it felt the right place to raise our family, first of all. Uh, at the time, we had a two and a four or five-year-old. But we also felt a, a real connection with the land and with the ocean around us. And, and of course, slowly but surely with the people uh, that live here. And so really, that really cemented our motivation to let go of everything that was going on in Kelowna 
from you know house businesses and why not and and make the move to uh to dajing gids and to hairaguay and, and here we are it's interesting we bumped into a few people that that seems to mm-hmm. be their story that they, yeah. they came for six months or a year yeah. and that was eight years ago and certainly everybody we have met here i think this is fair to say has been incredibly friendly so i can understand the appeal of the community but let's Let's back up even further and talk. Start to talk about cooking. And I understand you are originally from Italy. You've cooked in both Italy and Canada. But I read somewhere there was a story about your 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 start in cooking that came out of circumstance. I think your mother was injured. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And you <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. tell us about well, that. Well, uh, you you did your research. <laughs> of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my my mother sprung her ankle. And uh, this is, uh, you know, probably 25, 30 years ago. So I was just over, yeah, maybe 10, 12 years old. She was stuck in bed. Uh, my mom would take care of every meal, uh, take care of the house. Uh, but yeah, she was stuck in bed for uh, multiple days anyways. And we had uh, one of those uh, old school walkie talkies. Uh, and so <laughs> yeah. she had it uh, plugged in beside her bed and she coached me through my first meal. I said, this is how we're going to do this. And, and she, you know, she... You know, try to simplify things for me. Just make this dish. I said, no, no, no I want to make uh, <laughs> an appetizer, a main course, and a dessert because I, I, I really love desserts. So that meal turned out to be a, a real success. And I think um, it kind of sparked something that really, to be honest, remained kind of in the background for quite a few years, really till I moved to Canada in, in my early 20s. And where a lot of the things that I grew up with, a lot of the flavors, a lot of the habits around sitting at a table changed because I was in a new culture, uh, I was far away from home, and I felt a draw to, to learn uh, a bit more of how I had been brought up around food. So that continued even after you came to Canada? And, and I understand you were going back and forth a little bit between... I did, yeah. I, uh, so I, I essentially I spent, I was 19 years old when I left Italy for Canada. And then I spent most of my 20s in Canada. So, you know, while I, I, I soaked into Italian culture and, and experienced that fully, I was also really 19 years old. So I, I knew very little, I understood very little, and it was more through memories. Food being a good example, right? I never paid attention to a recipe that my mom cooked, but I could recognize the flavor in my mouth. But then I spent my 20s in Canada, and so, you know, there is different core values, uh, different ideas that belong to each, uh, each culture. And some of them, you know, I, I felt perhaps a little, a little bit uh, closer to the Canadian's ideas than, than the Italian's idea. It's a less conservative, more, open, or more open-minded uh, culture. And so I felt, I felt drawn to that, um, to that width. And I also... Again, around food, I felt drawn to that um, freedom. I think uh, traditions are, are beautiful because they, they provide this guiding principle to uh, connect flavors, to build menus, but also sometimes they're very limiting uh, because, you know, if I, again, to talk about my mom, if I, if I tell her, I cook this, you know, this scallop dish with uh, uh, this particular ingredient, and she, she just is like, ah, that sounds disgusting. <laughs> How could you do this? You're, but, you know, uh, because, you know, traditionally those would be the flavor combination. You kind of tend to stick to those combinations. And so in Canada, I find, uh, um, you know, the food culture is uh, is blossoming. And in, in a way that, um, 
if I had to make a comparison, it's almost uh, like a, a teenager who's learning about themselves and they're not quite sure how beautiful they are, wow. but they're stunning because there is this raw, beautiful elements that are really becoming, you know, in their, in, of their own. And so it feels really exciting to be part of that process. To be part of it. And do you think that's a really interesting analogy, the teenager and the Canadian sort of uh, culinary scene and, and where we're at in our evolution. Do you miss, I'm sure you do, some aspects of the Italian culture where, because I think the teenager probably not sitting down for a multi-hour meal, right? Yep. That kind of thing. And how how do you how do you reconcile those or do you do you crave italian culture sometimes because when i visit for example my cousins in scotland i find they are more not surprisingly european they tend to spend more time together yep. dining more time at the table that kind of thing but to your point also perhaps more conservative mm -hmm. so i would say the conservative is maybe a bit of a downside not as much exploration and innovation but the time commitment is a definite upside. So, mm -hmm. where where do you sit on that? And do you do you sometimes find yourself craving to get back to Italy to experience more of what you left? Uh, it's a question that I've been asked um, many times, yeah. and you know, at times, almost in terms of you know, why would you be here when you couldn't be in Italy? Mm -hmm. And not to, not uh, nothing to do with where I was specifically. And uh, uh, to be honest, I. I don't feel that connection to Italy to the extent that I that I would like to almost. And so, said that uh, you know, I'll tell my wife that I'm not your usual Italian, you know, and she will say that I'm so Italian ah. because there is a part of me that has been born and raised and is used to you know. When the risotto comes to the table, you sit down and you eat. There is no waiting. Okay, everybody has to be sitting at the table. So there is uh, there is habits that are that perhaps I'm not so in, uh, aware from an um, intellectual point of view, but that they are part of who I am. Sure. And I think now uh, with a young family with kids, I think I, I look forward to uh, expose them to Italian culture, uh, but I also I look forward to connect, reconnect myself uh, with a culture that I think. I left at a time that um, I didn't have as much awareness that I would have now, you know, to understand the impact that, that uh, practices and values and flavors have, you know, truly had on my life. Where, we should get a little more specific, where in Italy did you grow up and, and where have you been going back to? Monticelli in Dongina is my, uh, my, my place of birth, which is a small town about uh, um, half an hour out, outside of Piacenza. Piacenza is known for uh, cure for salami. Uh -huh. I've actually I've recently I've been able to bring some coppa uh, yes, from from my hometown of Piacenza. <laughs> yeah. uh, so that feels really neat to be able to bring flavors that actually feel really close and remember those flavors growing up. And then uh, I spent most of my life while in Italy in uh, in uh, Piacenza and Forte dei Marmi, which is a small town in northern Tuscany. Do you do you find as a chef and you've experienced now Italy, you've experienced. Canada. I was talking to a Canadian chef who cooks in an Italian style. He cooks in a northern Italian style and he, and he says he does that very deliberately because the produce available to him in, in and near Vancouver is more like northern Italy than it, it suits, is, yeah. than it is like southern. So he said it just makes, makes sense. But what made me think of it was his quote was, or his comment was that Italian food is much more about ingredients. It's mm -hmm. much more about like showcasing the the best possible freshest ingredients 
And he said, whereas French and other cuisines might oh be God, a little bit more about or... a technique and, yeah. and ego is the word he used. And, mm. and he said, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, mm-hmm. it produces some great food too. So do you find the same? And then maybe I'll get your thoughts on ingredients that were available to you in in Italy, mm. even elsewhere in Canada, Kelowna has spectacular produce, mm-hmm. and it's it's a little different here, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Very different, yeah, yeah. When I when I first moved on island, I felt a little disoriented coming from Kelowna. Some incredible art food artisans, some incredible suppliers, incredible farmers, and so it felt really easy to pull meals together. Really inspired by those ingredients. Which arguably, you know, that basic philosophy that you describe about Italian food is true to so many different cuisines, right? Like you, you cook with what's available to you because it makes sense. And so those, those ingredients, they're meant to be uh, where you are, they're grown there. And so then you're going to be able to maximize flavors and ease, you know, the, the, the creation of a menu, for example. But yeah, coming to Aydaguay, I mean, it's a very unique place. And so... Yeah, I, I refer to it as learning how to cook again because all of a sudden all these ingredients that I'm, I'm used to, uh, I was used to, were not available anymore. And so perhaps I kind of myself went back to something that I knew a bit more intimately, which is Italian cuisine. And so I kind of drew back on this, you know, on my Italian experience uh, to be able to incorporate Thai flavors. The challenges to cook here or to run a business are multiple. You know, uh, ferry dependence, uh, that's one thing that comes to mind. You will experience being here for maybe, you know, a month. You, there's going to be milk shortage, for example. Okay. There's gonna yeah. be, so yeah. there is certain ingredients that we don't produce on island uh, that uh, might not be available. And so, you know, there is some basic difficulties into being able to run a restaurant consistently. Produce is another really big one. Uh, there is a, an amazing organic farm on Maud Island. And uh, they produce some of the best produce that I've that I've that I've had in my life. They're, the selection is limited to what you're able to grow here because the growing season is quite short. And I think we'll be able to get fresh produce from. I want to say uh, I can't say I remember exactly from last year, but probably from uh, early June to end of September. So that's when we can get greens, we can get beets, uh, carrots, and a few other things, a few fava beans. But that's really short, and so then. You're, especially for produce, you're relying on, again, on what's coming from off island. And so then we really shifted to products that are grown in BC, but also products that travel well and products that will, tra- will, will last well. You know, things like uh, delicata squash, root veggies, and then incorporate those flavors in, you know, with a bit of consistency. Uh, the menu here at the restaurant changes more or less every week. And so that has allows also to, uh, to be able to adapt to uh, what's available. And then if I, there's another thing, which is, uh, you know, there's this uh, balance of the elements of uh, locals versus non-locals. Ah. And so, you know, for locals, they have uh, fish, all type of treasures from the ocean, easily available, often in their fridge, if not in their freezer. And so when the locals come out to eat, they really want their meat. Oh, they want their products, you know, they want the lamb, they want the duck, they want the products that are not that easily available here. And so then, you know, this time of the year is interesting because there's starting to be a switch between, you know, the different faces that come to the door. And so then you're fi- trying to find that balance. Okay, we'll have the tuna, we'll have, you know, different elements that are, you know, easily available to the locals, but also creating something that, that will intrigue the, 
the tourist. That's so interesting. I hadn't thought of that, and it makes perfect sense, mm -hmm. right? Because we, even though we're you know we're here for a couple of weeks, so we've got a we've got a good chance to get to see the area. But I would say we are very much in the tourist mold. We want we're like yeah, we yeah. want we want what's lo grown locally. Of course. But, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, I absolutely get it. If you're if you're local. Yeah, it absolutely makes sense. A, a high protein diet, yes, uh, because there is lots of you know there is lots of protein available both from the land and, and the ocean, and produce. There is lots of uh, mushrooms, lots of wild harvest uh, ingredients from the forest, and that has been a part of the learning process of being here, being exposed to those flavors, figuring out how to how to uh, find them, and understanding if I'm able to get in a in a large amount enough that I can use them in the restaurant, but also that keeps in mind that uh, a lot of folks here harvest, a lot of folks rely on the land, and so the practice, of, the practice is to take what you need, not to take what you're able to. Chef, can you talk a little bit more about that point, about your experience here in accessing either on your own or through foragers, uh, these wonderful local ingredients, but but only taking what you need because I have a real sense from you that you have a real sense of place around here and the importance of of being respectful to it. Yeah, I think when it comes to harvesting local ingredients and appreciating the connection with the land and the ocean around us, I think it's also important to acknowledge where we are and uh, who the land belongs to. And so the process should never be a process of taking, but uh, should be a process of asking as well. And so we are on Haida territory. Uh, this uh, land and this island, these waters belong to the Haida nation. And so as I learned what it means to include local ingredients into the menu, it also means uh, to connect with the Haida elders, uh, to ask for permission and to understand what I'm able to take in a way that feels uh, representative of other culture, but also uh, respectful of others that live off the land. But uh, the part of food gifting, I think, is what has struck me the most since coming from Araguay. And again, speaking of the connection with the land, the connection with those waters, there is such abundance of ingredients, which means that there is always something that shows up at your back door. Fresh salmon, gal, mushrooms... And what that does, it really inspires you to do the same with somebody else. Uh, because there is, you know, the abundance that comes from feeling taken care of, that, that inspires these this circular movements of food that really help to build a, a resilient community. What does preservation look like? And I'm thinking of, um, are, are you canning? Are you dehydrating? How are you dealing with the forage and local ingredients? So uh, it's going to be our second summer in operation and so I'm still very much in learning mode and so last year it was about discovering the ingredients that are available this year is going to be in a, a connecting to those that are able to bring them to the to the back door of the restaurant and this year is going to be about kind of increasing those amounts and canning and preserving those those ingredients and so there is ingredients like, um, you know, chanterelles, for example, that I'm able to get in, in, in good amounts so that I can preserve them in olive oil for and, and then to have to play with throughout the winter or uh, nettles are out right now. And right now, it's a, it, it's a very, you know, it's a, it's the beginning of everything. Right. right? It's absolutely ex exciting time. Yeah. Right? The gal that you tried is a real, it's almost like a changing ties in tides into uh, what's going to happen on island and it, so there is the herrings are here from the eagles to the bear are feeding on on these little fish 
and uh, the herrings on the kelp also dictate how much food will be available for so many different species. Because uh, everything follows the little tiny fish. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So the gao, can you describe that for us? I've got I've got a great picture of it, but for people who haven't well, seen it and tasted it, what is it? Yeah, uh, herring roll uh, that is deposited on on kelp, big uh, strands of kelp leaves, and so they're harvested fresh. They can be eaten raw, and they're often just fried up in a little bit of uh, butter and garlic, uh, which is what you tried. Yes. A real nutrient-dense, I mean, you're eating the eggs of a fish, and so nutrient-dense ingredient that is, comes after a long winter, and so that really energizes you and, and, uh, and fills you. And I think uh, there is this, this very gentle ocean flavor, and, and I, what I, I find myself loving about it is just the texture. You're almost eating like a bubble wrap. Uh, yes. Right? And yeah. so they're, they're very playful in the mouth. Yeah. It, absolutely. I was trying to describe it to friends and I said there's this great uh, springy, was yeah. the word I used, springy bite from the kelp and then the, and then the pops of flavor yeah. with, the, with the roe. I sent it, sent it to a, a buddy of mine who's a, sort of a fine dining enthusiast and he's all about caviar. And I said, have you ever had caviar in this presentation? Yeah, yeah. And he said, no, but I love herring. How is it? Yeah. An amazing ingredient. What is it from a business perspective? How do you find every chef I talk to in a city at least, and particularly these days, uh, as hopefully knock and wood we're coming out of the pandemic, it's a real challenge to find staff. Mm-hmm. Um, how is the rhythm of staffing and, and serving going here? It's going okay. Uh, I think a lot of the challenges that restaurants in the city have experienced are have been kind of amplified because where we are uh, costs have been higher shipping costs is a big one right so you'll notice at a grocery store for example that you, you're paying a higher price and so that translates into the food that we're buying as restaurant owners stuff has been a challenge i i've been quite lucky i have a core group of people that has been working with me almost you know for the last year and a half and they're just uh I, I jokingly say the minimum, the only requirement is to show up on time, <laughs> and sometimes that has proven difficult. Uh, so uh, I found a, a, a few folks that are really proven that have really solid uh, work ethics, but more so than that, they bring something of their own uh, when they they come in through the doors of the restaurant that I, I wouldn't bring, I, I wouldn't be able to do. That is unique to them, and so adds to the atmosphere, adds to the skill level. And so has allowed me to kind of continue to build on what we're trying to do here. So, so there, you know, gearing up for summer is going to be challenging. And that's going to be a problem. I mean, I think it's part of a larger conversation. Labor shortages in the industry have been going on pre-pandemic. The pandemic has aggravated the situation. And I think the reality is that it's kind of a crappy job. It's and a hard job. It's Ooh, a hard sure. job. Yeah. It doesn't pay very well. It's often seasonal. And so realistically, the, the pool of workers you're going to draw fa- from is very limited. And so, uh, sure, you can, you can drive on passion. And, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, one of my chef, Braden, he's, uh, all he wants to do is cook. And that's what he does every day that he comes in. That's what he does at home. And so there is that passion and drive that makes it easy for him to come to work. But at some point, he also wants to buy a house. And he may want to start a family. I mean, I went through that myself, you know, kind of leaving restaurant businesses and trying to figure out, you know, how am I going to have a family and how I'm going to buy a house. And so 
I think there is fundamentally something that is that is I don't want to say wrong with the industry, but that that, that has has caused this lack of sustainability into the labor force. And that's a whole huge conversation, multi-dimensional. I've always thought, I'll just offer this one thought and, and see what you you think. Part of the problem with cooking is I think it's I think it's like people who are passionate about music, people who are passionate about writing, people who are passionate about acting, which means there's this group of people out there who will do this because that's mm-hmm. just what they want to do. And I wonder if we as a society are taking have taken too much advantage of that, right? There's just the labor is is not compensated in a way in my view that's fair and that's totally driven by the customer and what we are willing to pay mm-hmm. for for a plate of pasta totally and you know and the other side of it is also it, it is just a plate of pasta you know we will charge 20 21 dollars for a plate of pasta and so for lots of folks that's that's a chunk of money right sure. and and so yeah it's it's a balance uh, that i'm not sure where the the proper balancing spot exists but it's somewhere and it's a balance that you know I, I strive to find here by you know doing my best to pay employees well uh, and to create an environment that is uh, you know welcoming and and where they feel they're respected and their voice counts yes but it doesn't take away that you know the longevity of an employee in the business is a is a difficult thing to achieve and you know and depends on many variables and at the end of the day i have to make choices for the business that might not be a good choice for my employee it's yeah again it's all that balance yeah Tell us about the other things that you are creating here and maybe we can stand up and, and walk around the room yeah, a little yeah, of bit course. because well, the name of the restaurant, Gather, suggests that it's more than just food. It's a community hub. And we saw that, my wife B and I, we saw that today when we walked in. There was a group here having yeah. a discussion, even though the restaurant is closed today. So beyond food, what is Gather about? It started off with the idea that uh, we're here, we're open only three days a week. And that's a choice uh, driven by wanting to find a bit of a balance with family life and a young family and and how much laborers we have. So what is it that we can actually do efficiently and well? And so having this space that uh, uh, sits empty for a few days a week, usually, you know, like two or three days. So uh, we offer the space for any gathering purposes that are aligned with our values. And to be honest, sometimes it's even it's a space that is warm and welcoming. So... Uh, from the Island Wellness Society, we'll, they will host their meet, uh, monthly meeting here. Uh, we have had uh, dance parties. Uh, we have had um, yeah, all ca- different kind of meetings. And I, I think uh, the the pandemic has definitely you know put a, a stop on a lot of the gatherings, and so that we haven't been able to quite develop that aspect of the business yet. But um, when we inherited the place, it was always a place that meant a lot for the community and that had different different impersonations over the years. And I think on an even more basic level, it's also, it's another place in town where you can go to. And so that means a lot in a community where there is only very few restaurants, very few places that you could rent for whatever your event might be. And so there has been a, you know, a real appreciation from the community to to have a space that is available. I'm, I'm sure. And I'm thinking back to Tuesday this past week. It was funny. We had been maybe on our first day here. We went to J&T, the, the uh, Chinese restaurant, yeah. had a great lunch. And then we were back and we were looking to go somewhere for lunch and thought, well, let's try somewhere different. And we were in the convenience store 
And I said, everything seems to be closed. Is, is there anything open except J&T? And the woman at the convenience store said, what day is it? And I said, Tuesday. And she said, no, J&T, that's what's open. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so I'm sure, yeah, people are very happy to, <laughs> that your space is here. Well, let's, let's look around a little bit. Let's have a look. I yeah. see, yeah, beautiful couch and chairs. I, <laughs> I also see, not surprisingly, given... Um, that you and your wife have two young children. I see lots of mini chairs and a, and a kid's play area. So I imagine this is regularly full of little ones. Thanks. Yeah, we had quite a younger crowd yesterday. And uh, it feels really good having a young family, uh, knowing what it feels like to be out at a restaurant uh, with little ones. It feels really good to have created a place that is really welcoming of, of kids. And so there is lots of young families here in town. And uh, so there is, yeah, there is a little kitchen, there is a little nook where you can kind of send your kids. And it's a joy when you see a young family coming in and uh, they can actually, the, you know, the husband and wife or whatever, they, they're able to enjoy at least one full conversations together before they're interrupted. <laughs> right, yeah. right. And I, I'm looking at the nook now and I see a little uh, mini play stove and dishes. And so maybe this is the next generation of your cooks here. We're, we're, yeah, yeah. That's, that's how we're going to solve the labor shortage. <laughs> And here under a sign that says the plastic free place, uh, I see a whole bunch of products. I see laundry soap, hand sanitizer, uh, mason jars, looks like dehydrated products. What is this? Yeah, so we have a little refillery and a selection of products that uh, essentially we started, we, we loved and we used for our family. We love because they work well, because they're mindful of our bodies, they're mindful of the planet, and often they're made close to us, uh, which means BC at the very least. And so uh, we thought to make this available to the community. Uh, the refillery in particular, it just makes a lot of sense because how expensive everything is to be shipped out here, to be able to make available products like uh, dish soap, hand soap, laundry, in a concentrated form, uh, so to minimize, you know, waste, minimize uh, shipping costs packaging, and whatnot, yeah, and packaging, yeah. yeah, and the carbon, yeah, to ship it around. And then there is some some local producers, some ingredients that we use in the kitchen that we thought it would be nice to make available, and then um, uh, lots of different tools that can uh, limit your your plastic use in your home. Wonderful. Well, let's wander over to the kitchen if we can. And, sure. Okay. <laughs> So uh, the restaurant used to be, oh sorry, the, the space used to be a restaurant uh, maybe 15, 20 years ago. It's been a, a, so fun to um, have different uh, guests coming through the doors and say, oh, I remember when this was uh, Summerland Pizza, I asked uh, my wife on a first date here, or this oh. was my first job. And, and uh, when we inherited the space, uh, it was uh, mainly a, a coffee shop. Uh, they did ice cream, maybe a few baked goods. But uh, this area was largely uh, not utilized in the kitchen. And so the first thing we did, we put some windows so that it didn't feel so much uh, like a cave. Right. <laughs> and to be honest, we weren't planning to open a restaurant. We were looking for a house, uh, which is, is worth of a different, different uh, topic uh, all, <laughs> all, uh, all aside. But uh, the house happened to have this space underneath. And uh, okay. to be even more honest, I decided that I, 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 at the time I decided that I didn't want to be cooking anymore. <laughs> Better so, buy a place with a full-on commercial kitchen. So it just kind of happened to have this space underneath. And so it, it felt like it made sense. Yes. And there was definitely some support from the community to have something new opening. And so we really, really 
slowly chip away at uh, at the beginning there was uh, just a you know a common household stove right. uh, for electric burners um, wow. and, and we slowly chip away at uh, acquiring what we needed to be able to function well and essentially the growth of the restaurant showed us where the main the biggest pain points were and so you know the first thing was a dishwasher and then it was freezer space and then it was a bigger stove and now I think we're at a point that as we approach our second summer uh, we're, we're very much more ready uh, but also we're not carrying a, a, a big a big loan essentially everything that that uh, is here uh, we ship away at uh, purchasing and, and so there's a, a bit of lightness into the business that, that was kind of provided that by the pandemic right they were we didn't have the finances to be able to just drop a whole bunch of money in the restaurant and so we slowly acquired what we needed and and because business grew so slowly over the year that also really aligned with uh, what we were able to do and what we could do the development i love well it looks you're, you're brilliantly set up now um could you walk as we're walking around can you walk us through i'm going to pick a dish um yeah. and and perhaps you have another one you'd like to speak to but the risotto that B had the other night, the the halibut and seaweed, I thought that was a it was so delicious. But B, I thought it was such a reflection of what I understand you're you're doing here. It was perfectly cooked fish, perfectly cooked rice, which it should be from an Italian chef. And uh, and but it it had this essence of the sea to it. So tell us about that dish. <laughs> seaweed is it, it's a it's a large chapter of different flavors and ingredients that I, I, I've personally just been dabbling with since coming on Haraguay. Uh, you know, living in Kelowna, you know, on the mainland, really focus on agricultural ingredients, uh, cheeses, meats. Moving here, the, the focus really shifted, and so part of the process of learning how to cook again here was to learn the ingredients that are available. And so seaweed, there is a, an incredible supplier of local seaweeds. And so she knocks at my door. Uh, she tells me, this is what's available. Uh, this is how you can use it. She also has some uh, cooking experience, some really solid cooking experience. And so she exposed me to a variety of different seaweeds that we are slowly incorporating in the menu. So the kelp to build the broth, it, it was a really easy introductory way to be able to include those flavors. It matches well uh, with uh, the sweetness of the halibut, and then the, little, the lemon will add that depth uh, to be able to kind of open up those flavors. So really, really simple, uh, but flavors that work well together. Yeah, yeah. Wow, did they ever? And we loved it. We had a we went with kombucha when we were enjoying it, uh, and what a great we had a salal kombucha. Who's making that for you? Very good. Yeah, uh, Mary at uh, St. Mary Springs. Uh, she's producing uh, local kombucha, and she has a, a variety of flavors depending on the time of the year that reflect what what's available on island. Oh, yeah, ah, I love it. Okay, can you pick one more dish or ingredient, one of your favorites that's either on the menu now or or that you're thinking about as the season uh, shifts? Uh, I adore the tuna dish. Uh, it's a local tuna loin. is marinated in uh, wine for 24 hours. A few other flavorings, so there'll be a little rose petals, peppercorns, a little bit of salt and sugar. And uh, so uh, through the marination process, it will pick up uh, all kinds of really uh, lovely floral aromas and a little bit of uh, you know the acidity of the wine that kind of provides a the, the little bit of boost in flavors. And then it's torched, so it'll be crispy on the outside, it'll remain raw on the inside. There is a lovely 
uh, roasted pepper vinaigrette that goes with it, really uh, uh, zingy and uh, with a bright acidity, and then a Mediterranean quinoa salad. Uh, so oh. it's a it's a light, healthy dish that that reflects both where we are and uh, who I am. Like I can't think of a better spot to to say to you, chef. Thank you so much for having us here. Thanks for sharing your story. Uh, I will put links to your Instagram, to your website. Thanks really for taking the time to be with us, both for a wonderful dinner a couple of days ago and for this this meeting this afternoon. So, grazie, hawa. Grazie. <laughs> uh, thanks. Thanks for the visit. It's always a pleasure to talk food. So, uh, I really appreciate it. I am really looking forward to returning to Haida Gwaii. It is a wonderful, remarkable place with wonderful, remarkable people. Chef G, thank you for joining me today. And thanks again for that delicious dinner and those amazing cookies. All right. Some chef Timoni housekeeping now from Haida Gwaii to Las Vegas. Of course, there is more Las Vegas. This next trip will be in mid-June. And I'm heading back to the Mojave to join my first ever 360 Vegas podcast, Vegas Vacation. This looks to be a super fun event where the three hosts of 360 Vegas meet up with some of their listeners and we all have a fun time. My wife is coming on the trip. Some good friends from Vancouver will be there too. And and I think it's going to be a whole lot of fun. It's also going to be a quick trip, so I'm not going to be staging anywhere, but I will indeed have to eat. So no doubt there will be a recap of the Vegas food highlights coming up soon. If you are enjoying this show, please tell a food-loving friend about it, and please rate, review, and subscribe to Chef Demoni wherever you listen. Now, the review thing, really, if you listen to Chef Demoni, particularly on Apple Podcasts, it would mean a whole lot if you would take a few minutes to leave a written review for the show. That will help other people discover Chef Demoni, and I would really appreciate it. Also, if you've got a question or a comment for the show, perhaps a guest suggestion, or a topic idea, please do get in touch. You can find me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Those are all at Cheftimony. On LinkedIn, just look for Graham McLennan. You'll find me there. And of course, you can always send me an email, and those go to graham at Cheftimony.com. All right, that is all for now, all for episode 59. Thank you for being here. I'm Graham McLennan, and I'll see you again soon, right here on Cheftimony.com.